early 1980s, Francis Schaeffer uh, published a book called A Christian Manifesto. It's seen a lot of years of popularity, very uh, famous work. And whether or not you're familiar with that work, you probably are familiar with a, another Christian manifesto that predates Francis Schaeffer's by many centuries. Now, if you disagree with Schaeffer, then that's your right to do so. There are really no consequences to that, but if you disagree with the other Christian manifesto, again, it's your right to do that. But if you do, you'll miss God's blessing, but more importantly than that, you'll place yourself in eternal peril. And it's this, this manifesto that we're going to be studying the next few weeks. And I, before you get all alarmed, I'm not saying, hey, we're not going to be looking at the Bible. You need to go out to Barnes & Noble and buy a different book. What I'm saying is we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. It starts in Matthew 5. So if you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn to Matthew 5, and we're going to pick up in verse 1. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1, and we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount. So this is a Sermon on the Sermon. But what is a manifesto? Well, a manifesto is it's a, a statement of goals or policies of a person or a group. And I submit to you that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' manifesto. And what we're going to say today is, and really the next uh, few weeks, is really what Jesus is all about. And, and he covers a whole lot of ground in the Sermon on the Mount. It's what he believed. It's what he taught. It's what he called his followers to do and how to live. And there are a few important things I want to, I want to point out as we start this study of the Sermon on the Mount, just to kind of set the stage. Uh, the first is, this is probably not just one sermon that he preached. Now, it could have been. It could have been a rather long sermon. It's three chapters long. But just think about all that's contained in Matthew 5 through 7. We've got the Beatitudes, uh, teaching on prayer, almsgiving, fasting, uh, matters of the heart, judging, being salt and light, anxiety, the golden rule, the wide and the narrow gates, the two foundations. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there. And so this is probably several days' worth of preaching, but it's even more than that because we don't get this in English because if in just a moment in, in verses 1 and 2, we'll read that Jesus sat down and he taught his disciples. Now, taught, for us, is just a past tense word. He taught it, the end. But in the Greek, there are two different constructions that show up in our English translation as a past tense. One means it happened in the past and it's done. He shut the gate, the end. Okay, moving on. It happened one time, it's finished. The other is an ongoing habitual action. It was his custom to go to church every Sunday. That is the form of the word taught that we have in Matthew chapter 5. And so what that's telling us is, this is not what Jesus said one time. This is not just one sermon that he preached. This is what he taught his disciples over and over and over. This is, this is what he wanted his disciples to get. And therefore, as his followers today, as his disciples... We need to get what he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount into our hearts and minds. Now, he gives us three chapters worth of teaching. We're not going to look at that all today. In fact, we're not even going to make it through all the Beatitudes today. Um, and, and the first part of what, we, what we're going to look at, the first 12 verses, we're only going to focus on the first, uh, the first few. But it's called the Beatitudes. And you probably have heard of the Beatitudes. You may have heard sermons on them. You may have heard them taught in Sunday school. Uh, but on the surface... They seem like nice church things to say, don't they? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Doesn't that just sound churchy? 
I mean, it, it just sounds like something you'd hear in church. And, and, but they don't seem very practical to live out. But that's precisely what Jesus wants and expects his people to do. I like the way Oswald Chambers put it. He's, he's the one that wrote, My Utmost for His Highest. Maybe you are familiar with that work. But he wrote on, about the Sermon on the Mount, and, and he said this, The first time we read the Beatitudes, they appeared to be simple and beautiful and unstartling statements, and they go unobserved into, into the subconscious mind. We're so used to the sayings of Jesus that they slip over us unheeded. They sound sweet and pious and wonderfully simple, but they are in reality like spiritual torpedoes that burst and explode in the subconscious mind. And when the Holy Spirit brings them back to our conscious minds, we realize what startling statements they are. For instance, the Beatitudes seem merely mild and beautiful precepts for unworldly people and of very little use for the stern world in which we live. We soon find, however, that they contain the dynamite of the Holy Spirit. They explode like spiritual minds when the circumstances of our lives require them to do so and rip and tear and revolutionize all our conceptions. Now, he said it real fancy. I, I just say, he hit the nail on the head. We're supposed to live out our be these Beatitudes, and if we do, it'll change our lives. That's why he writes books and I don't. Because minus is just a sentence. He has big fancy language. So I want us to look at this passage of Scripture, see how Christ wants us to conduct our lives, and, and see the pathway to blessing, because that's what Jesus begins to lay out. If you would, stand with me in honor of God's Word as we begin reading in Matthew chapter 5. Like I said, we're going to read the first 12 verses, though we're only going to focus on the first uh, few Beatitudes. Starting in verse 1, it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thank you. May be seated. Now, as you just look at the Beatitudes as a whole, I think you'll, you'll notice a few things. It starts out with Beatitudes, or blessings. Now, what does that word blessed mean? I mean, it occurs in every single verse, so we better know what it means and understand it. Well, blessing here means happy. Happy is the poor in spirit. Happy is uh, the, the merciful. But it goes deeper than that, because the happiness... Seems like a very shallow thing, doesn't it? Happiness is based on what happens to us. But that's all an external thing. But to be blessed goes deeper than that. It's an internal thing. It means that we are approved by God. It means that God shows us His favor. It means that we find hope and joy in following Christ independent of our outward circumstances. That's why, uh, you know, the things that happen to us may change, but we can still have joy because our joy is found in Christ who never changes. Now, again, this blessing is not bestowed arbitrarily. It's not willy-nilly style. It's not like God says, um, I'm going to spin the wheel. Okay, today is Heather's day to be blessed. Okay, here's your blessing. 
It's not like he's, he spins the wheel and says, okay, now it's Kyle's day to be blessed. He, he doesn't do that. Jesus lays out specifically what we need to do to have the blessing of God. Now, just one other observation I, I want to make with you. I know it seems like I'm building a big porch on a small house, but, uh, but it, I think it will help us better grasp what's being said. Jesus starts out and ends this section in the same way. The first verse, the first teaching, it starts with the kingdom of God. The last section, it ends with the kingdom of God. It's like a kingdom of God sandwich. It starts the, the passage, it ends the passage. And what this is telling us is this stuff that he's teaching is for people who are going to the kingdom of heaven. This is, this is for Christians. This is not for people who are members of this church or that church. It's not for, for people who do certain works. It's not for people who, who are trying to work their way to heaven. It's aimed at the children of God. And as with these other things that have to do with the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, there's a now and a later fulfillment. There's a partial fulfillment now, a more complete fulfillment later, and, and I think you'll see that in uh, just a moment. But anyhow, let's look at what he says in verse 3. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What a weird place to start. And what a weird, place, weird thing to say. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are really the ones who are truly happy. They're the ones who are truly favored by God. Now, if you're trying to start a worldwide movement, what are you going to say? Blessed are you if you do the things I say. You'll get all kinds of stuff. I mean, God's blessed to be popping off all over the place. That's the kind of stuff that we would be expecting. But Jesus didn't say that. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why did he start there, and what does that mean? Well, as you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that the poor show up a whole bunch of times. And the Jewish idea of, of poor people... Uh, kind of went through a transformation through the ages. It started out, a poor person in their mind was just somebody who didn't have a lot of stuff as far as material possessions go. But as time progressed, it, it came to be identified with the person who actually was destitute, the person who didn't have enough food on their plate, the person who was near death because of want. And then it came to mean that person who was in that position, but they had no, no way to change their circumstances. Therefore, they had to trust completely on God. They had to rely on Him. And that's the image that Jesus uses here in verse 3. He says, Happy or fortunate is the person who is spiritually destitute, and they know it, because therefore they will trust fully in God to provide for them. You know what? That's half the gospel right there. We're all spiritually destitute. We're spiritually poor apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, we're without hope. We have no, no power, no ability to change our circumstances. And we're all like that apart from Christ. But the key here is these people recognize that fact. See, there are a lot of people in the world who are apart from Christ, but they think they're doing okay. They, they don't see any problem with the way that they're living. They think they're clothed. They're, they're like the, you know, the emperor has no clothes. Remember that old story from, from childhood? That's the way a lot of people are spiritually. They think they're clothed in righteousness because of their good deeds, but they're spiritually naked. They think they're going to heaven because I'm doing these good deeds. I'm not doing these bad deeds. Therefore, I'm going to make it. But that's not what Jesus says. The Bible says all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. And if the person who is spiritually poor and realize it, if they will see the Savior, or if, if they're spiritually poor, they'll see the Savior. And that's, that's when they come to the Lord. Does anybody like going to the doctor? I hate, yeah, a couple of you do, weird people. I hate going to the doctor. I don't have doctor phobia or anything like that. 
man, I got to be in bad shape to go to the doctor. I mean, I got to be hurting. Something's not working. It's. I mean, I won't hardly go unless I can get get a, get a sick day at work. But anyway, um, I mean, I've got to be in bad shape. But you know, whenever I'm in pain and whenever something's not working the way it should, it's a lot easier to convince myself. You know, I might need to go see old Doc Kimball. Now he's a good doctor. Don't get me wrong. But I still don't want to see him if I don't have to. And the same thing is true spiritually. People who who believe themselves well don't feel the need to go to the great physician. Only those people who feel their need are going to go to the Savior. And Jesus says the blessing that these people will get, if you look at the end of verse 3, is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know how much plainer Jesus could have said things. If you recognize how short of God's perfection, His requirements, you fall. You recognize that there's nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. There's no way you can change your circumstances. And that causes you to cast yourself upon Him for, and His mercy. Jesus says you'll be saved. You'll have your sins forgiven. You'll go to heaven. And just as eternal... Did, did you know eternal life is an in the future thing, but it's also now? We think, oh, well, I'll get eternal life whenever I die. No. Jesus says that if you're a Christian, you have eternal life now. Here's what he said in John 17. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, eternal life is more than just unending existence. It's more than just a a quantitative thing. There's a qualitative thing as well. It's when we know God in this life. There's a now reality, but there's also a future fulfillment. Same thing with the kingdom of heaven. Now, just when you get saved, you're not going to be taken up into heaven to experience glory forever. But instead... You can experience God's peace in this life. You can experience fellowship with God, fellowship with fellow believers. Uh, And that's just a little taste of heaven that we will one day fully enjoy. But Jesus says not everybody's going to experience that. Only those who are spiritually poor, and they recognize it. Somebody as well said, there must be an emptiness before there can be fullness. And so poverty of spirit precedes riches and grace in the kingdom of God. Now, the question that presents itself out of this text is this. Are you spiritually poor? Are you spiritually poor? Now, I'm not talking how much money do you have in your bank account. Because probably many of us would say, I'm I'm not destitute. I ain't got too much. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He says, are you spiritually proud? Are you spiritually poor? And listen, this isn't just for people who don't believe in Christ. This This is for... Christians, too. Did you realize you could be a spiritually proud Christian? The Pharisees, they were, they were religious, but they were proud, weren't they? You can be a spiritually proud Christian. How does how, that look? Well, maybe, maybe you're feeling real good because there's this temptation that always gets you, and you overcame it today, this week. Yes, I didn't give in to it. Take that, devil. You get all puffed up with pride. Or maybe maybe you've experienced victory in some other area. Maybe God has used you in a mighty way. Remember Elijah? He had the showdown on the prophet, uh, with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And then he got all depressed because Jezebel said, I'm going to kill you. He, he, he went from a, a high, spiritual high, to a spiritual low. Maybe you're blind to your own sin and shortcomings. We, we would do well that... As Christians, we would do well to remember 
We have what we have not because of us, but in spite of us. We have what we have not because of something that we've deserved, but because of God's grace. But what about that person who's never accepted Christ? Sometimes people say, well, God won't send me to hell because I've done all this good stuff. I haven't been going out doing all these bad things. You know what? If you go to hell, it's not going to be because God sent you there. What? No. God has made a way for you to be saved. He sent His Son to die on a cross so that we might trust in Him. And if you don't do that, that's on you. That's your responsibility. God has done everything on His end for you to be saved. Now it's up to you take that next step. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then goes on in verse 4 and says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Equally puzzling beatitude. Happy are those who mourn. That's a paradox, isn't it? Happy is that person who's crying. What? What are you talking about here, Jesus? Well, there are a couple different possible meanings here. I think the I think one is much more likely. But one possible meaning is that when believers mourn because of affliction, because of grief, because of some trial in life, they will be comforted. And there is an aspect, there is a sense in which that's true. Jesus said that he was going to send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, the Paraclete, the one who's called alongside God, is, God the Father is called the God of all comfort in 2 Corinthians 1. And probably every Christian here, if, if we were to sit down, every, every Christian here could identify a time when you went through a, a, a rough patch. I mean, things are not going right. Stuff's going on in the family. Things are going on in your job, and your health, whatever it is. And you could t- tell how God upheld you through that time. Now, He ministered to your soul. You could, you could do that. That is a possible explanation, but I don't think that's the thrust of the passage. The second possibility, and I think this is the right one, blessed are those who recognize their sin, that's the first beatitude, and therefore they mourn because of it. That's the second one. See, it's one thing to to acknowledge or recognize that we've sinned against God. It's another thing to be sorry for it. See, and and those of us who who, who have dealt with children, maybe in a teacher context or... A parenting context, you know what I'm talking about. A kid may acknowledge that they've done wrong, but you can tell sometimes they acknowledge it without being sorry. See, there's a difference between remorse and repentance. And and this is the other side of the same coin. On one side, you recognize your spiritual poverty, but on the other side, you feel sorrow, sorrow for offending God. The first is more intellectual, the second is more emotional. But those who recognize their sin and they mourn because of it, verse 4, when they feel that conviction of it, they'll find comfort in the gospel. See, it's through Christ that we can have our sins forgiven. It's through Christ that we can be reconciled to God. The, the prophet said, Though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them white as, make you white as snow. Jesus invited all who are weary and heavy laden to come to him and what he do. He said, I will give you rest. And maybe you're mourning today over some sin in your life. Find comfort in him. Find comfort in the forgiveness of sin. But I'm going to turn this on its head for those of us who are Christians. Because it may well be that if you're a real gut check honest, you would admit that you haven't mourned over your sin in a long time. Ask God to help you see the sinfulness of your sin. 
Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's forgiveness. I'm not saying you get saved again. But First John says that we have an advocate with the Father, so that when we, when we sin, if we'll confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now we're just going to look at one more beatitude, and that is, verse 5, Blessed are the gentle, or your Bible may say meek, for they shall inherit the earth, or your Bible may say the land. Jesus calls his followers to be meek. Now this is tough, especially some of us guys who say, I'm not going to be meek. Don't you know who you're talking to? You know, all we puff out our chest, try to be all tough, what have you. Jesus says, be meek. Now before you shut me out, listen to what this means. Jesus himself was meek. That's what he said when he invited people to him. He says, for I am meek and lowly of heart. Moses, fiery temper, led... I mean, he talk about leadership. This man was leading millions of people. He had, he had a fiery temper. He, he came down from Mount Sinai and saw the people worshiping a golden calf, and he took the Ten Commandments that God himself had inscribed on the tablets of stone, and he threw them down and ground them up into powder, made, sprinkled on the water, and made the people drink it. I mean, that's... Ugh, you know? He was... But the Bible says he was humble. See, we have, we have so lowered what meekness and gentleness is in our culture from what Christ exalted it to that we don't really understand. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. See, meekness comes from a heart that's too big to be moved by little insults. Have you ever been around that person that they're always upset about something? I mean, constantly. Somebody has always offended them. They're in a perpetual state of offendedness. Maybe you work with some of them. Maybe you live with some of them. Maybe you, maybe you are some of them. And I mean, just everything, you know, everything is an offense to me because they've, you know, they've got an attitude. Don't they know who I am? I can't believe, you know, and they just, whew. It's, the, that person can't handle life very well. This is the opposite of that person. This is the opposite of that person who's always flying off the handle. This is the opposite of that person who's always retaliating and getting somebody else back. Again, we've, we've lowered our, our idea of what gentleness is because we think gentleness means a doormat. No. We think gentleness, gentleness means being a coward. No. It's self-control, or, or better yet, God control. Paul said, love bears all things. This is the opposite of that sudden anger that comes up and expresses itself, but it's also the opposite of holding a grudge. And maybe you're thinking, you don't know what that person did to me at work. I've got to get them back. How can you not get somebody back after what they did to me? But what does Romans 12 teach us? Romans 12 says, vengeance is God's. He will repay. See, the meat person trusts God to vindicate them. The meat person says, you know what? God promises He's going to repay. He's going to take care of the problem. Who am I to get in His way? Who am I to intrude on His face? I'll let God do what He promised to do, and I'll just leave it at that. That's what the meat person does. And the blessings that the meat person is going to get, if you look at verse 5, is he says they will inherit the land, or your Bible may say the earth. And in the, in the time of Christ, of course, they only had the Old Testament, so that's what the Jews used. And if, you'll, if, if you read through the Old Testament, the land 
was just kind of like the ultimate of God's blessing. Talk about the promised land, Canaan. And we kind of use that in a almost like a picture of heaven today. If you listen to any Southern Gospel, you may have heard Canaan land is just in sight. On Jordan's, storm, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wistful eye. And we're not saying at the bank of the River Jordan. We don't see Canaan land. We don't see, you know, we're not over in the Middle East. This stuff is a picture of heaven. And, and in that day, inheriting the land was kind of a, a proverb, a proverbial expression uh, to refer to any great blessing. And so when Jesus is saying this, he says, Blessed are the gentle or the meek. He's, you'll inherit the land. He's not saying, if you'll just not give that person back, you're going to have a big ranch. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that you're going to have all kinds of blessings, the biggest of which is heaven. The ultimate fulfillment of that, what, you remember what the, the book of Revelation, what does it give us a picture of? I saw a new heaven and a what? New earth. A new land that we will inherit. In fact, Revelation 21, 7, speaking of the new heaven and new earth, says this, He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Blessed are the meek, the gentle, for they shall inherit the land. They shall inherit the earth. Folks, this is just the beginning. Maybe you're saying, yes. Maybe you're saying, oh. You know what? God calls us to something to live way up here, and we live way down here so much. I mean, Jesus is, this is, this is not one sermon, remember. This is like his distilled teaching over and over and over again. For three years, he taught his disciples, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to live. This is the way I want you to act. That's the way he wants us to act. You say, I don't know what God's will is. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those uh, who... Who, who do all these things. That's God's will. You don't have to wonder about that. He told us what He wants us to do. And it all starts with that first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We're spiritually impoverished. We are destitute. We're poor. We don't live up. And there's nothing we can do to make it better. Nothing. What if I go to church some more? No, that doesn't, that doesn't do it. That's rearranging chairs on the Titanic. It doesn't help. Do you recognize your spiritual poverty? And do you mourn because of your sin? Does that describe you? Maybe you're feeling the convicting hand of God because of some sin. Maybe you're, maybe you're not a Christian gone to church, maybe haven't gone to church. But you feel God saying, you know what? You are a sinner. And you need a Savior. You need Jesus Christ. If that's you, the Bible says that if you will repent of your sin, if you will turn away from your sin and put your faith in Christ, you'll be saved. Today is the day to do that. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. While it's still called today, don't harden your heart. Respond to Him. And if, if you're a Christian, it's easy to get puffed up with pride. It's easy. I jokingly, well, I didn't do it. I thought about doing it. This week was Teacher Appreciation Week, and one of the kindergartners the other day called me Mr. Beautiful. And boy, it's, and I thought, you might need to have your 
highest check, you know. And then I had another kid give me a card that said Mr. Braddock, and then under it in parentheses it said Mr. Sweet. And I thought, man, these kids are getting to know me awfully good. No, I didn't really think that. But, I, I, you know, I did tell Scarlett, it's, it's hard to be as humble as I am. And, I, I, you know, I, humbleness or humility, it, it's one of those things where if you say you've got it, you've lost it. You know, that's what Jesus calls us to that. He calls us to, to be meek, to mourn over our sin. And it's so easy to say, you know, I've been going to church. Put a little sticker on my chart. Been going to Wednesday nights, Sunday school. Been staying awake during the preaching. You know, I've been doing all this stuff. But seriously, that's I mean, we we try to we we try to make our things sound really good, don't we? And Jesus says, "You don't cut it. You don't cut it. Here's your sin. This one sin is enough to keep you out of heaven. And we all sin a lot more than one time in our lives." You need to mourn over that. You need to see the sinfulness of your sin, that you have offended a just and a holy God who all He's done is love you and you have scorned Him and spit in His face. And He's still sent Christ for you. If you're a Christian that's that may be mourning over your sin, repent. Change the way that you're living. Do something different. Find forgiveness in Christ. And then, of course, the meekness. We all struggle with wanting to get back at people, plotting. Do unto others before they do unto you is what we think. No. Let God take care of it. He says, I will repay. Watch them with me as musicians come. As you stand, I ask you, bow your heads and close your eyes. And in this time, I just I encourage you to, to lay your heart bare before God. You know, He already knows what you do anyway. He knows what you're thinking, how you're feeling. You're not fooling Him. You may fool me. You may fool your person sitting next to you, your kids, your spouse. Maybe fool yourself. You can't fool God. him to search you and try you and let you know if there's any wicked way in your heart. Are you a follower of Christ today? Not are you a Baptist or Pentecostal or anything else. I mean, are you a follower of Christ? Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's not my words, that's his. Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask that you'd help each of us as we deal with the truth of your word, we deal with our own sin. Lord, I pray that we have some sin in our life that you convict us. 
Lord, we know it's not comfortable, but we want to be right with you. Lord, help us to feel our need. Help us to recognize that we can't cut it on our own. Help us to recognize the sinfulness of our sin. And Lord, if there's somebody who's never accepted Christ that's here me today, I ask that you would draw them so you can pick their hearts. Let them, let them not be able to get away from it. Let them become your child. And God, for those of us who are Christians, Lord, help us to live out the Sermon on the Mount. Not because we think that we're going to earn our way into your good graces, Lord, but it's because it's what Christ called us to. We thank you for 